We all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman-Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for Subscription Stories, True Tales from the Trenches. Most subscription-based businesses focus too much on acquisition and not enough on retention. But actually, retention improvements are usually more effective both for total revenue and for profitability. Today's guest, Patrick Campbell, couldn't understand why so many organizations weren't doing the math. So he started his company ProfitWell to help companies better manage churn. Patrick says you have more churn lovers than you think. They include how you target prospects, onboard subscribers, support engagement, and of course, what you say when they're actually getting ready to leave. And did you know that one of the best places to look for new subscribers is in your list of former subscribers? In today's episode, Patrick and I talk about how to optimize your subscriptions for fewer and softer goodbyes from the moment you first say hello. Patrick, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I love your content, so I'm glad I can be a part of it now. Well, I'm very excited to talk to you because churn is probably the hardest thing for subscription practitioners to figure out, and it's so complicated, and it's something you've been thinking about for a long time. I'm wondering, what prompted you to build a business, ProfitWell, around churn, around keeping subscribers? There are thousands of products for acquiring customers. There are next to no products for monetizing them. And then there are very few products for retaining them. And so we kind of thought, let's not be another one of the 6,000 companies for acquiring customers. Let's try and like have these high leverage areas and build some products around there. So that sounds probably great and nice and you know clean, but it was a lot more complicated and all over the place over the past eight years. And so it's a little more complicated just to be intellectually honest. Yeah. So monetizing and keeping subscribers, you have so much data about subscriptions, about subscribers, the companies that you work with. Can you share a few nuggets that surprised you when you first saw them? A lot of the stuff that's plaguing a lot of businesses, and I use that obviously very loosely, a lot of it's pretty fixable. And what I mean by that is, and to be very specific, right, like things like credit card failures, right? If you're a credit card-based subscription business, which there are a lot of those, obviously, it typically is about 20 to 40% of your lost customers. So if you lose 100 customers, 20 to 40 of them are because of payment failures, which is pretty out of control. That's why we started building our retained product to start there is because holy cow, this is a purely mechanical problem. And it's a problem that plagues all of these businesses, right? So that was a really, really big 20 to 40% is a really big number of people who didn't actually actively want to leave. I think a lot of our views on growth, particularly in the subscription space, they're more instinctual or more feeling-based than actually looking at the data of what works and what doesn't, which I think is important, right? Because the value of your product is hard to measure. And it's also one of those things that's going to take a long time to get the right features and the right customer and all these other things. But there's all this like more data-y mechanical stuff that can be fixed to kind of like buy you more time, essentially. And so it's, it's not an either-or thing. It's more of a, you got to be doing everything. 
Yeah. If I were going to going to summarize what I heard you say, it's that, you know, separate from sort of the unique strategy of your subscription business, whether you're, you know, offering a, a software product, it's B2B or a, you know, consumer media offering or, you know, talk of the month club, there are shared kind of hygiene rules that can really make the difference for any business, any subscription business. And if you're not doing those, you're leaving money on the table, you're making it harder for your you know, subscriber to get value. And you know, there's no reason not to do these things. A really important thing to call out, and I know that this is a subscription-oriented podcast, so a lot of people are probably already aware, but just to make sure we're on the same page, the beauty of the subscription model is that it's the first commerce model in the history of kind of humankind where the relationship with the customer is built into how you make money. I don't have to convince you to keep coming back each week. I don't have to convince you with a coupon because you're going to go to the store across town, right? It's like, no, like every month, as long as the value is still there, presumably I'm going to stick around, right? Now, that thought aside, the other thing to keep in mind is, is that the beauty of the model from a technical standpoint is you're always theoretically improving the value of the product, right? You're shipping new features, you're getting better at your bug fixes, you are, depending on the type of product, you're, you're making that company more money or you're, making the, you're saving that person more cost or whatever it is, right? So like, there's this relationship that is much more equal than it used to be. All of a sudden, it's like consumers probably still have more of the power, but it's a little bit more equal, right? So the reason I say that is because there are so many different things that influence the value of your product besides just the price point, right? So when we talk about monetization and experimenting with monetization, the answer to your question is, is like the best companies in the world are shipping some sort of pricing experiment every single quarter, every three months. Now, that does not mean they're raising their price or lowering their price every three months. What it means is, is one quarter they raise their price because they haven't raised it in a year. And really, you can only raise your price all but probably once per year, just because like existing customers, like even if you have the best product and you're shipping so much value, it's, it's just a little rocking the boat to your point. But then the next quarter, they're doing localization, putting different price points in different regions around the world because everyone has a little bit of a different purchasing power. Netflix is one of the best companies in the world at this. Every single region has a different price. Evernote has 120 different price points across the world. It's crazy, right? The next quarter after that, oh, we're going to take this feature out because not everyone really uses it, but the people who use it get a lot of value from it, and it looks like they're willing to pay for it. So we're going to make that into an add-on. So all of a sudden, like my revenue per customer is going up. And so the thing I would say is like the best companies are doing something every three months, but the reason is is because anything that influences your revenue per customer, your ARPU, your ACV, et cetera, that's essentially a, a pricing experiment. And so those are the things that I would focus on. And I think the reason a lot of people don't do this is because they're scared. They don't realize there's so many other things they can do besides raise the price. And also, like, there's, you know, it's you have these most brilliant business people in the world, but pricing sits at the intersection of uncomfortable and important. And whenever you have something at that intersection, everyone gets a little squirrely because they don't want to make a mistake. But as you make an experiment, you realize, oh, that experiment it had some good parts. It had some bad parts. Now let's fix this part. Then let's experiment with this. And it's just like anything else in your business, you should be optimizing it pretty continuously. So so if a company were saying, okay, we haven't changed our price in five years, Patrick, Yeah. what do we do first? And let's sure. say that they're not global. 
because I think by the time you're global, you you may also already have a pricing expert on staff because you've you've reached yep. a certain size. If, if you're thinking about Hopefully. pricing by by region, but let's say that you're just in one country or in in a particular market, and you're trying to figure out those other things, the, yeah. the specific features and the ARPU and all of that. Where would you advise them to start? I would start with either evaluating your value metric, so how you charge per user per thousand visits, especially if you're a B two B product, but if that's a little bit of a harder lift or you're like more of a consumer product, I would start with like, what's an add-on that we can sell, right? It might be a feature you pull out of your existing plan and make a separate subscription price for, or it might be something you're like, everyone keeps asking for this. It's not going to be in the core product. Kind of go from there. And, and both of those have like very, very time boxed and also very high impact you know, changes. Value metrics, a little bit scary to change, a little bit harder to change. Whereas things like add-ons, I think those are easy because it doesn't really affect anything. And, you know, you send a marketing email or something like that. Honestly, though, most companies are global and I will, will go out of my way to say the best starter project is typically price localization. Even if you're a small company with only about 20% of your base outside of your home region. And the reason is, is because it's like a very tight thing to research. All right, our price in the US is this, our price in Europe is this, our price in the UK is going to be this. And you don't have to change anything about your billing system. You don't have to like argue about features. You don't have to do anything. It's just a very straightforward exercise. I think if you have a very low politics culture, then you can go after, let's raise our prices. Okay. So to summarize, you're saying number one, even if you're a relatively small company, you probably have a global presence, and that's a great and low stakes place to start experimenting with pricing strategy. And then over time, you can experiment with the value metrics. So, you know, how are you going to price and based on what and who are yep. your best customers? And also, it's always easy to offer something new and charge a little more for it. So you said these add-ons to say tier one is our core product. And if you want the new feature, you're going to pay some extra, extra fee. And that way nobody feels like their price is going up on them. But if they want the additional value, they can get it. They're going to pay more. What I used to say is start with your personas or profiles or segments, right? Because if you don't know who your customers are, like the entire point of your business is drive a person or a segment to a point of conversion and then justify that price and that product. And if you have no idea who that person is or that segment is, there's no way you can set up your pricing, let alone efficient funnels, right? And so that's the real like starter answer, but it's just, I want you to get some momentum before you like do broader research, just because it'll get the team on board with more research. So you're saying that the work that they don't want to do or that they that takes a long time is the customer segmentation or persona development. Typically, yeah. Work and that you're saying that even before you have that information, you can start tinkering with your pricing around regions, around new features, and potentially even around sort of pricing for value concept that you use. You just need some momentum. And so if there's any product people or marketing people listening who are like, I I know we need to fix our pricing, but I can't get these folks on board. Just start with something concrete like we talked about, because you go in and try to transform the whole company. There's just 
people feel like the stakes are too high. In reality, they're not, but people feel the stakes are too high. So start with something where you can get some momentum and then you start getting addicted to like answering more questions and getting more changes and those types of things. And then all of a sudden you have a full-time pricing person working there because there's just enough leverage in, in that lever for them to use. Yeah. It's funny that you bring that up. It's kind of the same philosophy as onboarding a new subscriber. Yeah, right? totally. You don't have the privilege of telling them all the things that your product can do until they fall in love with that first, whatever it is, the headline benefit, the first thing that brought them in and get the value. Like the first thing you do is you give them value. And the second thing you do is show them more ways to get value rather than saying, welcome, sit down for the next you know hour while I walk you through every single feature that we have before you even get value. Yeah, totally. And I think it's, I don't know, it's hard because some of the things that we deal with, like on um, the retention and pricing side, it's, again, we used to, and this is like a very common thing I would say for product as well, like just any product team, it's like you're always trying to change the behavior of your customer. And our customers are operators at, at subscription companies, right? And it's like, even if I convince them, hey, if you look at this lever, it's so much more effective than this other lever, they're still like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that lever, I'm still going to spend 60% of my budget on acquisition, sales acquisition. and marketing, which is fine. And, and I don't think people should spend less. They probably should be spending more, but it's like, yeah, you should do that and this other stuff, right? And so this is why I'm like, we've evolved of like, how do we make it easy? And this is also why our retained product, we've actually set it up. We, we call it anti-active usage. It's not really the best term. It's more like passive. You just set it and forget it. You don't have to like tweak anything. You don't have to set anything up because I just think that like when we're talking about these areas of business, but I'd also argue like a lot of the products of people listening, it's like if you're relying on active usage, you have to be in the person's workflow or you have to be something that's so entertaining. They keep coming back. Most of us were fighting for that and we're just not that type of product. So we should kind of, I don't want to say give up, but like do it for them. I think that's where the next wave of a lot of subscription products are going both in the consumer side and, and the B2B side. Yeah. You've said, it's funny because you're kind of picking on acquisition as a growth lever. The most important thing I would argue, and I am not a good person to expound on it. I just see it in the data. Onboarding. Onboarding is the thing that you should spend your time on, right? And the way I look at this to maybe to kind of back up a second is there is strategic retention and then tactical retention. And what I mean by that is strategic retention is what most people think about when they think about retention. Do we have the right features? Do we have the right onboarding? How is our support look? How are we fixing bugs? Those types of things, right? And the largest kind of bucket in that group is typically onboarding because you want to get people to that moment of delight or that moment of value, that, that time to value. You want that to be really, really small, right? This is why you need a good product team because as you already alluded to, they're not always going to have the best like understanding when it comes to what goes on with like, you know, those users, all of a sudden you have all these hundred different types of users and the fragments, which ones are the best ones, which ones are the worst ones that takes a strategic brain that takes someone like banging their head up against the wall, studying all types of data and then making an instinctual decision. Right now, the tactical side. So first have a good product person, have a good product team. Biggest mistake I see is people, they allow growth to drive product too much or product is basically project management. Like the CEO is just doing product. You need someone who's like going to argue and sweat and say no and all these other things, every decision when it comes to product. That's the type of person you need. And, and those people aren't necessarily cheap, right? That's the type of person you need. So that's where I would spend some money. Now on the tactical side, this is where I would spend 
more easy money, like quicker money. And these are things like credit card failures, your offboarding, which we can get deep into. I think offboarding is one of the most underutilized pieces of any retention, you know, kind of like how people leave, which is, you know, kind of a big theme of this pod. And then the last thing is really around like reactivations and term optimization, which I alluded to before. These are four very mechanical things that if you implement them, even if you implement them in like a very crude way, just have basic things implemented, I guarantee your churn will go down. Guaranteed. Say those again, the four. It's credit card failures, delinquent churn, it's called. If you're an invoice product, meaning that's how you make most of your money is invoicing, it's still a problem, but not that big of a problem. Credit cards, it's a pretty big problem. Even ACH is a problem. You're offboarding. How do people leave? Like, what do you do when they leave, including like salvage offers and those types of things? Reactivations, which is someone who has left, getting them back. You'd be amazed at how little companies do, even though. People leave for reasons that have nothing to do with you all the time. And the final one is term optimization. So how do you get shorter term customers, monthly, quarterly plans onto annual plans or even two-year plans, depending on the type of business you are? Those are the four pillars of tactical retention. You get those taken care of. You can solve up to about 40% of your churn problem. It's not going to be the majority, but the cost it takes and the time it takes to implement those things it's kind of like you set it up and then you don't really have to touch it and it pays dividends over time. There's always more you can improve. But yeah, that's the thing I would have a lot of people think about is like the strategic part, that good product person, death by a thousand paper cuts. The other stuff, it's like we can take a couple of weeks and implement the basics and you know it'll pay dividends for a long time. Yeah. So let's go through those in a little more detail because I think this is gold, right? This is what people struggle with. So, so credit card failure is pretty mechanical. Yeah. Right. You just need a system that solves for some of those credit card failure issues. Offboarding. Yeah. That's a term that I don't hear very much. What is offboarding? Yeah. It's kind of to use an overused metaphor. Obviously, when you start dating someone, the beginning is great. But if it doesn't work out, the way it ends is also pretty important. Right. You know, maybe you're not going to be friends, but you don't want to leave that person with like hating you, right? And sometimes that's unavoidable, right? But I think offboarding is basically like when someone hits that cancel button or sends an email to support saying they no longer want the product or calls in. I don't think you should force people to call in, but you should still allow people to call in to cancel. What does that process look like? And it's not as important as onboarding, but again, it's more tactical. So we can implement some very cool things. And we've, we've got a lot of data on this. I'm sure I can share of what that looks like, of how to, you know, basically save as many people as possible from canceling. I mean, that's really what you're trying to do with good offboarding is, you know, make sure that not everybody leaves who hits that cancel button. Right. So a big part of offboarding is actually not offboarding them at all. It's exactly. saving them, right? That's one part of offboarding is when somebody says, I'd like to cancel, it's understanding why they want to cancel. Yep. And maybe removing some of the drivers for that. So if they say, you know, I'm not using it enough, say, hey, we have a smaller offering. If they say, you did something that made me really mad, you say, let's fix that. Let's do something to accommodate you. Thank you for telling us. So one part of offboarding is is actually, (laughs) you know, keeping them. It's when the, you know, the person says, I want to break up with you and you say, but let's give it one more chance, right? What can I do to save this? I've heard you talk though also about, what I think of as true offboarding, which is, as you said, sometimes the reason that a person wants to leave is both valid and not related to anything you could have controlled. Like I'm leaving the gym. Why? Because I'm moving moving cross country. 
or I broke both of my legs in a car accident and I don't want to pay when I can't get to the gym or I'm getting PT already, which takes the place of it for several months. So how do you handle that part of offboarding when when it actually does kind of make sense for the person to leave? Let me kind of explain the best offboarding flow, or at least what Mm -hmm. we found in the data. Yeah, please do. So as you said, this is not only for saving folks, it's for learning, right? If you don't understand why people are leaving or why people love you, you can't really fix those things, right? And so the natural question that everybody has, which is great, why are you leaving? You should definitely ask that. And typically, should I don't think a free-form response. People are leaving. They don't necessarily want it. Like some people will give great feedback. Don't get me wrong. But you can follow up to get that deeper feedback. I like to give them four to six options. And those four to six options... They won't be worded as I'm about to say, but they should relate to what I'm about to say. So something like, I'm no longer using the product, but I'll be back. Something Mm -hmm. like, I didn't see the value. Something like, you were missing a key feature. You might word these a little differently depending on like your type Mm -hmm. of product. But, you know, these things are like very notable of, you know, where you're, why they're leaving, right? And then obviously you're going to take that data, you're going to give it to your product team and your product team is going to scrutinize it, maybe follow up with some people with like, oh, what, can you tell me more? Do you mind getting on a call, et cetera, right? And some of those things also might be like, I couldn't get a support or sales question answered. Now, the natural instinct and what most offboarding then does, and not everybody has this, not like maybe 30%, 30% is very generous. A lot of consumer companies do this because it's a good best practice. But naturally then what happens is people go right to an offer after that. Oh, stick around for $10 off. That's the wrong thing to do, or at least it's not the optimal thing to do. The next question I want to ask, and this is just the second question, why did you stay? What did you value about the product? And these are things like you can say, oh, the features, it fixed my you know, features. I got so much value from it. There, there's a lot of options you can give again. But the reason I asked that question is because the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to say something along the lines of, hey, considering you really loved our features, but you are leaving because you're not using it right now, why don't we get you on a pause plan, right? I'm going to tailor that offering depending on what they said. And if they say something like, hey, I didn't have enough time to see the value, but I really liked your features. I'm going to go, cool, why don't I give you a free month? And if you're a product that has real costs, it might be, why don't I give you $10 off this next month, right? I didn't have a chance to talk to support, but I love the features. Okay, great. Here's a Calendly link. Let's get you scheduled with support and let's like save you, quote unquote. So there's a couple of things going on. One of them is, you know, something that I noticed that was really interesting to me is when you were talking about the choices of why I'm canceling, you didn't say it's too expensive because no. nine times out of 10, if you give a free response, that's what people say, that's what people which say. is kind of like the romance of saying, it's not you, it's me, which is just not true. If you give them that option and multiple choice, people will just go to it because the thing is with, again, with value, like if something's valuable enough, you pay for it. Even if someone next to you won't pay for it because they don't see the value, right? And so saying something like too expensive, it's, it's kind of like a secondary emotion. It's like, well, why is it too expensive? Well, you didn't have the right. right features. You didn't necessarily see the, you know, right. didn't have enough time to use it, right? That's and what you really want. Exactly. And then the reason, I didn't really state this, but the reason the whole like, why did you stay or what did you value question so important is because it, it serves two purposes. One, it helps your product team figure out like, oh, it turns out we're doing really well here. The other thing is it, it causes this phenomenon that's almost like a senioritis phenomenon. Like, I don't know, you know, like, oh my God, it wasn't that bad. It was great. You know, it kind of reminds them that there is some value there because most people who are leaving, they're not leaving because they're aggravated. It's a very small portion that those are the ones we fixate on. But for a lot of people, it's like, 
there's just something that you couldn't recognize because you have such fragmented user bases that you need to like, you know, break through that somehow when they're when they're leaving. And then obviously you can make offers, right? Maintenance plans. This is something that's underutilized, even in the consumer space. Hey, you're leaving? Great. Well, what if you like paid a dollar a month, five dollars a month, so we save all of your data or save all of your settings, yep. right? I'd rather have that than a full churn because then I can like send them emails about it. And as soon as they come back and start using the product again, I bump them right back up to the fully paid plan, right? Pause plans, we all learned a lot about those. Salvage offers, you know, a month free, dollar off, ten dollars off, these types of things. And then like scheduling with support, scheduling with product to talk through things. All of these types of things like incrementally lower your churn. And you know, the best folks we've seen, and, and right now we have this product's in early access. We've worked on it a long time, but like we're finally like releasing it. Right now we've seen like even just with the most basic things, like people who can't fully implement it, you're seeing lower churn rates by like 20%. And people who are fully implementing, you're seeing cancellation rates drop by like 35%, 40% in some cases. You're saying that by having a better offboarding flow, which is try to salvage what you can try to understand really specifically why they're leaving and have some kind of remedial offer or experience to try to shore up some of those holes. So if they're leaving because of a support issue, you get them to support right away. If they're leaving because they're not using it enough, you come up with a lower priced, lower value offer. And you're saying that organizations that do that, they're the ones that enjoy that kind of almost a, a tactical bump in retention. If you have terrible retention to begin with, meaning you're like pre-product market fit, as they say, nothing I said is going to help you. Uh, <laughs> right. Because that follow-up question, which is, why were you here? What, what value place. did you get? They're going to say, and this is what I think is so interesting. They might say, I came because your pitch was really good, but your product itself isn't as good as you promised. Either it doesn't work or it doesn't have the features I need. And in that case, you don't really want to retain them because you can't deliver on your promise. You need to go back to the drawing board. But I think what you're saying about offboarding is for a lot of people, when you have product market fit and the customer is leaving, it's important to understand the reason and see what you can do to you know, mitigate the problem. Yeah. And if they actually go, which I think is sort of the next, kind of leads into your next point, you want them to leave in such a way that they don't have a bad taste in their mouth. 100%. And two questions where you offer something to save them and your language is hopefully helpful, not a bad taste in their mouth. Now, there are the purists out there who are like, just let me cancel and that's it, right? Don't get in front of me. And it's like, I don't know. You had a relationship with this person. Like, there's going to be someone who's very like upset or something like that. I ignore those folks unless it's like, 60 to 70, like, unless it's a very large number of the people complaining, and then I look at what's going on. But also notice, like, you know, we're not forcing someone to make a phone call, right? I think that's a really big mistake. And to tell anyone listening who forces their users to call to cancel, we've actually found that the average subscription company, let's say 100 people leave, they didn't get saved through offboarding, like 100 people are gone. Over the next 12 months, the average subscription company is able to get, depending on the type of vertical they're in, somewhere between 20 and 40 of those folks back. Because again, a lot of them, even if you didn't get them with a salvage offer, they still are, you know, kind of like they know you, right? And awareness is the hardest, you know, hardest part of growth, right? That's why we spend so much money on acquisition. So all of a sudden they're sitting there and they're like, oh yeah, I do have that thing I need. And I remember I used it and let me check it out again, right? There's that feeling. But what we found is, when people don't offer some ability to self-serve, cancel. 
all of a sudden that reactivation number plummets. It plummets right. so to like five to ten percent. So what's really important, I think, for listeners here is you need to have an offboarding flow. So you need to ask them why they left and you need to try to make it right for them if there's something you can make right. And if you can't, you want to let them go as easily as possible. You don't want to, you know, require them to call you, you know, between four and six on, you know, odd numbered Tuesdays. You want to make it easy for them to leave so that you get that 40% of cancels back at some point in the future, which is, you know, not insignificant. It's actually quite a big number so that you can reactivate them later. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And, and just to maybe close the loop on reactivations, it's actually pretty straightforward. You just have to email them. Like you just have to email them and just say, hey, like maybe offer an offer, like, you know, a certain dollar amount off or some sort of trial or something like that. But a lot of people just do not email the people who know about your product and they left not necessarily because of you. Like those are the best people to email. The volume, thankfully, is not going to be the most, the biggest. That's not like emailing your marketing list, but it's just a very, very good segment for you to go after. Yeah. Yeah. And some of them, I mean, I think that one thing that happens is we're still here. Reminder, we're still here when you're ready for us. And another one is you left because we didn't have this feature and now we have now this we feature, have yep. right? Now we have it. And they already understand what your value is. So I think that's a really important point that you bring up about reactivations. And then the last one that you talked about is term optimization. And I get questions about this all the time. Yeah. Should I have monthly? Should I have annual? Should I require people to be annual? Should I only have annual? What about quarterly? How do you think about both figuring out what's right for your organization and then encouraging your subscribers to commit to longer stays? Yeah. So I think the biggest mistake, I think, so the first part of what you just said, like, should you force them into annual? Should you like, I think to me, unless you have a product that is heavy inside sales, meaning it's a multi-call close at least, and it's a product that takes time to set up. So I think about like HubSpot, right? For, for me to set up my CRM or me to set up my marketing automation, like, you know, and I'm not like using the free tools, but I'm actually like buying the proper core HubSpot platform. It's okay to charge me annually because it's going to take me two months to set up and then it's going to take me another three months to see the value. And I'm committing as a customer to a value relationship and you are committing to like, hey, we're not going to screw this up. And right. I'm showing you through all my sales and getting the sales engineer on the phone and everyone involved about everything that's going on, right? So mm -hmm. what ends up happening is all of a sudden, that's okay. Most of us are not that. I think most of us think we're that. And then most of us are actually like, oh, there is a use for monthly or there's a use for quarterly, right? Or our buyers are more comfortable with that. Because again, a monthly product is almost like trying out the product, right? It's like you're giving them a chance to try it out before they make a bigger commitment. And, and the biggest mistakes I see with people trying to optimize for term is the only time they ask someone to be on a longer term plan is when they first sign up. Mm, such a good point. If I don't know you and I don't, you know, again, to use the overused dating metaphor, like I'm not gonna get married to you on the first date or commit to moving in with you, let's say. I'm gonna wanna like, okay, go on a few dates, right? I'm gonna wanna use the product for a month or whatever it ends up being. And then the best way to do this is like identify between if it's B2B SaaS, typically like customers who are two months in up to, or like one month plus in up to about 10 months. If it's like 
e-commerce, subscription e-commerce normally, like the second month up to maybe about four or five months. Really, it's where your LTV like starts to drop off, essentially. Kind of like where 80%, you know, where you start seeing that drop off. That's when I want to have different campaigns that go out maybe every other month and basically offer them some sort of a discount. Now, the discounts are really important here. People discount way too much. Normally, people who like the product are just looking for like a sweetheart deal or just looking to, you know, kind of get in the door. So I would actually start with one month if you're a B2B SaaS company. Some B2B SaaS companies go for like six months right away. Um, I'd start with one month, maybe ratchet it up to two months, but make sure you phrase it as months. People don't understand percentages when it comes to discounts oftentimes. We see this in the data. Um, so offering two months versus the percentage equivalent, this is a study that's been done in retail for a century now, but it works in SaaS and subscriptions so, as well. So, so what you're right. saying is, just to summarize, what because I think this is really very specific and useful information. So you're saying... You can certainly offer the discount for the longer commitment upfront. So to say, join, you know, it's $15 for a month or $100 for the year, but you want to offer it again a little bit later when they've both had a chance to get to understand your offering and also at that moment where a lot of people are starting to drop off. And that's where you want to introduce these other offers. And when you make those offers and you're trying to explain the value if the value is not an additional functionality, so you know when you're an annual subscriber, you get X, Y, and Z, if sure. it's just about a discount, you don't say you get 10% off because that requires me to think. Yep. You say you get two more months for the same price. You get two free months or three yeah. free months. I think it's one of those things that like, that's the exact point. We don't understand percentages, like as humans. Yeah. Like it takes us a second. Right. You give me $10 off, I'm like, oh, I know it's $10. It feels physical. Right. Yeah, it's something that's right. cool. Yeah, that's awesome. So obviously there's a lot more that we can cover. I know you keep a lot, you have a tremendous amount of content that you create yourself and that the ProfitWell team has. And I encourage people to go check it out and to check out your product as well, because, you know, it's it's basically free money, right? It's basically, yeah. you know, passive churn, putting these kind of systems in place is something that I think organizations should really take a look at. But I do, before I let you go, I want to See if you're willing to play a quick round of speed questions, a little speed round. Like even my answer to that is not the shortest. So I'll try to be as short <laughs> as possible here. Okay. First subscription you ever had. Oh my gosh. Probably my cell phone. It's also the okay. longest subscription I ever had, my phone number. So that's exciting. Okay. Your favorite subscription today. I love my Whoop. It's the first fitness product that actually got me to do stuff I needed to do. <laughs> awesome. One place you really want to go on your upcoming North American van tour. <laughs> yeah, we're doing a van tour. I have a camper van that's that's branded. I really want to go to like Fargo and Kansas City. These cities have big subscription and SaaS communities, but no one visits them because it's Fargo and Kansas City. And I, I want to, you know, go see what's up. They're great places, by the way. They're also just great places. I've been to general, both places. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're both great <laughs> from just a vacation perspective. But yeah. Yeah. And last question, one piece of advice that you want people to take away from our conversation? If there's one thing that they remember. We talked about a lot. Done is better than perfect on mostly everything, right? And it's never done. Like nothing's ever going to be done. So it's one of those things where like, it's okay to do a basic version of some of the stuff we talked about and then come back to it a year later and then, you know, realize that, you're going to have to do a lot of little things and build time. And so I think that sentiment is, is what I'd want people to leave with. Yeah, I think that's very wise. Done is better than perfect and get in there and start experimenting. 
Thank you so much, Patrick. This was phenomenal. So much information and wisdom on pricing, on onboarding, on offboarding, on reactivation, on managing churn. Really appreciate you taking the time to to talk to us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That was Patrick Campbell, the founder and CEO of ProfitWell. For more about Patrick and about ProfitWell, go to ProfitWell.com. And for more about subscription stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Patrick, go to RobbieKelmanBaxter.com slash podcast. Also, if you like what you heard, please go over to Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes and leave a review. Mention Patrick and this episode if you especially enjoyed it. We read all the reviews because we want your feedback. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Subscription Stories.